HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Two percent, two percent, two percent. Uh, the two percent's right over here. Oh, hey, Jenna. I didn't know you shopped here. Uh, yeah, anything to support local food, know what I mean? I definitely do. Though that's not the only thing you do in the name of Good Eats, obviously. Well, true. I also host Eating Matters every Wednesday at 5 p.m. where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. Be sure to tune in. All right, gotta get the plug in there, I get it. Yep, I'm hashtag shameless. You know what else you can do to support the local food community, right? Well, yeah. Make a donation to Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. That's right. And I gotta call you out on the whole local thing. What do you mean? Well, The Farm Report, A Taste of the Past, Japan Eats. Those are shows that take you around the country and the world. I'll give you that. So how can listeners give their support? It's pretty easy. Just go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the big red heart in the top right corner. It's pretty easy from there. Thanks. Today's program is brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit cane5.com. I'm Greg Blaze, host of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes.
Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thanks so much. I'm one half of your host, Darren Bresnitz. We are sitting in uh, one of the many upstairs secret rooms of Gwen. Uh, <laughs> Chef Curtis, and welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Nice to be here. Nice. Thank you for having me. So you're you're uh, a few weeks in. Yeah. A few weeks in. How's it How's it going? I, I feel like there's no more unique time in a restaurant's life than like the first like few weeks and months. It's so true. Yeah, it's like... Um it's a bit like having a child, if, you, if you've ever had a child. Not that I know of. Um, well, that's good. Not good that you don't know, them, <laughs> but good that uh, uh, you haven't had one yet, because it means that you still get to sleep in and go to cafes and you go to watch a movie. You, whenever your buddy has a kid, yeah. they ring you invariably and say, why didn't you tell me? You know, like it's, it's so much harder than I'd ever imagined, and I, opening a restaurant's a bit similar. So this is your second kid, yep. with Maude being your first. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, you know, to say, a lot of times we ask people where their inspiration or like how they got, you know, their first love for cooking for, but I think it's pretty clear that your grandmothers had a little bit of influence on you and your brother when it comes to cooking and food. Yeah, they did. I mean, in some ways they had a big influence on me with food, but mm-hmm. a bigger influence on me with other things. Um, you know, my one granny Maud taught me how to play cards. She taught me how to play tennis. She she taught me a lot about life and same as my other nan, Gwen, she taught me lots of bits and pieces. And I think when it comes to a restaurant, you spend so much, you have such a personal relationship with your own restaurant and to give it an identity that means something special to you is, it's purely a selfish thing, right? Like there's, (laughs) there's no reason. And truthfully, what, who cares? It's the, it's just a name, like name some other good restaurants and tell me what they mean. Spargo, Alinea, sure. Milice, you know, like you don't know and you don't really care, right? They just, they become their own things. Um, but for me, I wanted it to feel personal because I knew I was going to be married to it for a while. And, um, it's, you know, the, it, it's funny, the, a restaurant takes on its own, it becomes its own being, you know, sure. like it becomes this living, breathing thing um and it's interesting having it resemble your grannies because um it's a place that people come to have fun and drink and you know in some ways misbehave but you 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 know and one of my grannies was certainly like that the other one not so much but they're both they're both good fun and um taught me a lot about the world but don't you find when you name it after two women who had such an influence in you in your life that it's it's easier for you to sometimes check yourself when, or as a reminder of when you're making decisions, both big and small, or what you're putting into it. And I'm not saying that, you know, obviously, Granaches and anyone else who has a restaurant that's done what they've done, put that decision to it. But when you're naming it after someone, it has a little bit more weight and gravity to it. Yeah, it really does. It makes you more honest. Yeah. It makes you more earnest, um, to use one of my granny's terms. And I think that that's a... That's a good thing, you know, like you want to live your life by some kind of guide, set of guidelines and, yeah. and rules and um, yeah, it keeps you, uh, keeps you in check for sure. I mean, so you've traveled the world, obviously you're not from LA. What do you mean? <laughs> you didn't recognize think, my Brooklyn accent? Yeah, I was going to say, I thought it was the Bronx accent. Um, <laughs> but you know, you've, you know, you're obviously a chef who's traveled the world, who's done everything from TV to shows to festivals to everything um and you've cooked all over the world as well with even like legendary uh miss chef white but why la 
you know, why, why when it's all said and done when you sort of, not that you're done with TV, but when you've moved on to the next phase, why here? Look, I think LA is a special place for many reasons. It's, mm-hmm. it's a city that you uh, truthfully don't like very much when you first get here. At least that was my experience. I think, <laughs> I think that's everyone's experience. It uh, just grows on you. It does. Yeah, it, it, it really does. And you fall more and more in love with it. And from a culinary perspective, I couldn't think of anywhere I'd rather be more. They have the most incredible microclimates within both northern and southern California, but around Los Angeles specifically, you know, you always hear those stories about people that go surfing in the morning and snowboarding in the afternoon and, uh, because, and it's true, you it's literally true. can, which to a chef means you can buy carrots in the morning from the high desert that's still got a frost on the ground, but you can buy tomatoes in the afternoon yeah. that, it, you know, is an hour out of San Diego because the sun shines 320 days a year or something crazy. So we just, you know, we, we can grow the best vegetables in the world. To, sure. In my mind, there's no question about that. And we also have this kind of hippie-ish attitude amongst our farmers and growers that give it like a real genuine community-based feel to it. So um, you can get your hands on incredible ingredients. And I think LA in general has gone through this crazy renaissance in terms of its diners. Absolutely. um, Where people are really interested and you know, prepared to try new things where once it wasn't that exciting here. I mean, you, I think that the ingredient argument is always going to be said for the West Coast, especially in San Francisco and Southern California. But I mean, you could have done anything. You could have gone anywhere. You could have opened up a giant restaurant and your first restaurant, 24 seats, concept restaurant, high-end concept tasting menu. What what drove you, and in Beverly Hills, like what drove you to make that decision? Because that is a very much, uh, you know, drawing a line. This is a statement. This is not just, oh, you know, I'm cooking stuff from, you know, you could have much cooked your grandma's recipes in a 200 covers a night type yep. of restaurant, but you did very concept, very clear mission statement. What drove you to that decision? You know, I think for me personally, I got to a point in my life where I'd made a bit of money. I had sure. a pretty good lifestyle. Um, I'd fall in love. Was about to start a family. It's a beautiful you know, thing. Yeah, it was all sort of like pretty rosy. But I think if you're sort of creatively driven, and you don't play out that opportunity of creation, um, there's something that feels a little hollow. Mm-hmm. And I've always been creatively driven, and I always love being in a kitchen and developing new things. Um, and that had been put on the back burner so to speak and I, I'd sort of been busy with other stuff so to me it was a real personal challenge I was like can I still do it you know can I I'm 40 sure. most of these guys are in their 20s that are doing it you know like I joke with that they call me granddad downstairs in the in the restaurant because they're all uh, they all skip out at the end of the night and go out for a drink and I hobble out because I'm an old man compared <laughs> with them but uh, you know it's sort of The kitchen's changed a lot. You know, technology's used now more than ever in the kitchen, um, if you so choose to endorse it. Um, There's just a very very different attitude. I grew up in a restaurant era where you got screamed at and things thrown at you. You know, of course that doesn't exist anymore. Not at all? Well, not on Saturday, not on Fridays. Not on Friday nights. Or Thursdays or Wednesdays. Saturdays. There's another secret room with Gwen. (laughs) but I mean, so you open up this restaurant, you open up Mod, uh, which is not only concept, but fine dining in a way that is both fresh, 
you know, when I think of fine dining in LA, it's Providence or something like that. Not right. a lot of people are really opening up a ton of really high-end stuff. Um, but the concept is something novel in a way where it's one ingredient making the entire tasting menu each month and the change. Um, so you didn't even pick an easy concept. Can you talk about the process of what it is to not only serve a nine-course, ten-course tasting menu overnight, but then also doing R&D and finding the next recipe for the next month at the same time in, I mean, a, not a giant restaurant. Right. And look, I, I, truthfully, it's a very selfish choice to do more. Like, it's sort of... So what I'm getting is everything you've done is very selfish. It's all just for me. And uh, you're just happy enough that people <laughs> like your uh, selfish intonations. Well, I figured I'm, I'm throwing dinner parties all the time anyway. I may as well get paid for one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, like to do, like it's every chef's dream, is what I'm saying. To have a 24 seat restaurant. Oh my God, it's the it's perfect. Yeah, and and to challenge yourself to the point where you say, at the end of every month, we literally throw it all away, and then we have to implement a brand new menu. It's effectively opening a new restaurant each month, and then the idea of farm to table was always great to me, especially when you're at home and you're buying ingredients, treating them very simply, and serving them. But from a restaurant perspective, I feel like it's a little lazy for a chef. You know, it's like, yes, it can be delicious that way, but as a chef, aren't we supposed to do something more than that? Aren't we supposed to, like, really figure out techniques and show interesting, creative ways to serve food? Like, Mm -hmm. isn't that the difference between shopping and cooking Um, from a professional standpoint? Which has been the argument of West Coast versus East Coast cooking where all the East Coast chefs go, well, you're just... You have the best ingredients, so you're not even really doing anything other than just letting the ingredients speak for themselves. Right, right. But, you know, I wanted to take those fantastic ingredients and sort of flip, flip it around a little and say, let's put it under a microscope and let's say, what can we do with it? Here's a fabulous carrot, but what can we actually do with it? Yes, we can juice it, we can dehydrate it, we can... We can freeze it, we can turn it into a gel, we can turn it into a paste, we can roast it, we can, you know, manipulate it in a thousand ways that actually change the texture, the flavor. Um, And then how can we do that and still thread the ingredient through um, a multi-course tasting menu and have it not become redundant? Right. Um, You know, you've had a lot of successes, I would say. The Morel dinner, um, I'll say it on the record, one of the top three meals I've ever had. That Morel scallop was... Amazing. Both my wife and I still talk about that years later. But not every ingredient can really hang for nine courses. Have you tried any ingredients where you got, you know, maybe two or three, but just didn't, is is never going to get its own own starring role? Look, we've done, no, we haven't done an ingredient and then turned our back on it. We've, like, been, (laughs) maybe for our own detriment, you know, I think we've had a couple of menus that haven't been as good as others. Do you want to, which ones? Were you just like, it almost got there, but not as good as... There's two that really stand out to me. Yeah. Corn was really difficult. And I think we did a better job with corn than... I thought it was a great meal. Did I you? Had, I had you corn. Had corn? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was hard because it was, it's so sweet. You don't think about it at the start, yeah. but the entire, like everything you do to corn, whether you juice it or fry it or cook it or poach it, you know... It just has this residual sweetness. Mm-hmm. And to do a 10-course sweet tasting menu... It's a lot. ...is miserable. Yeah. It also doesn't balance well with acid. So, you know, where another sweeter ingredient that you can think... Um, you can balance it with some lime or some passion fruit or some vinegar or whatever. You, you get a real balance. Um, avocado was the other one that was hard because it's, again, a fatty ingredient that, yes, you can cut through it with acidity... 
But when you actually break avocado down, the flavor of it is a little one note. Mm. You know, like it's... Mm-hmm. And when we searched, we tried it raw, we tried it... Um, we tried to cook it, which doesn't... Um, in my opinion, really work as well with it. Yeah. But you want to keep giving people different stuff. So, you know, but look, I think that's been a part of the fun of it. Yeah. You know, I remember we had a new chef to party in there just recently during the garlic menu, and he's like, I just would never have thought of doing a garlic dessert. And I was like, me neither, but we have to. You know, right. that's kind of part of the fun of it. I mean, it's, you know, the reception to Mod has been really great. Um, and in many ways with it being a fine dining type of restaurant and L.A. being, I think, overall a much more casual type of experience, do you feel any responsibility in helping shape what is, like, the new wave of fine dining in L.A.? Are you pushing to see other restaurants like that? I mean, I know, especially with Gwen, this is another fine dining restaurant, uh, tasting menu as yep. well. Um, but are you hoping to see more f- fine dining across it? And, like, do you feel that weight on your shoulders a little bit? Do you know, I think LA's got a really interesting way of making old stuff uniquely Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think what's happening with this, like, new food movement in LA is you open a good restaurant, and this is just the nuts and bolts reality of sure. it. You look for staff, right? That's the first thing you do. So you bring a few people you know, you fly someone in from Australia, you fly someone in from the UK that you used to work with, whatever. But then you need the other 15 people that make up the kitchen brigade. And as people start coming through the door, you're like, mm, okay, you've worked here, you've worked there, but there's there might only be a handful of restaurants in LA that you're happy to take cooks from because you know they're going to have the experience. Right. But in New York, there might be 20, or in Chicago, there might be 15 great restaurants that you'd be like, oh, you worked at Grand Atchett's joint? Absolutely. I've right. got, you, you got a spot on my team, you know, where in LA, it's, it's a little more difficult. But the flip side of that is people start coming to LA because they hear about the ingredients and they hear about like, you know, there's something new happening out there. I think it is truthfully, and I'm not just saying this because I I, I live here. I really do think it's an exciting time to eat in LA. And I go to, I go to New York and I go to San Francisco or wherever else. And you're like, it's not as exciting as it was 10 years ago. And there's been some kind of shift. Yeah. I agree. I mean, well, your chef over Ahmad came from uh, St. Assam in Brooklyn. Right. Um, I think I think it absolutely you're seeing a definitely a creative and culinary drain a little bit from the East Coast because there is more opportunity and more room to play around out here. Yeah. But do you feel that at some point, maybe in five, ten years, there's going to be a whole lineage of people who work, cooked at Mod? Or do you hope to see that and they're opening up other fine dining restaurants? I really do. You know, and I think... That's what's interesting about it. You know, I talk to people about Los Angeles as if I'm a native, and of course I'm not. You know, yeah. I've only been here two years. Are you years. sure? <laughs> um, and I hope that some of the guys that are in my kitchen right now that are from London and New York and Chicago and Spain and Greece, I hope that in 10 years' time they're having a similar conversation saying, in Los Angeles we do it like this, because they've come with their fine dining backgrounds sure. from around the world. And then their experience in Los Angeles, and the thing I love about LA is you can do fine dining without all the fluff, without all the pretense, and without yeah. like the snobbiness, and the diners really respond to it. And you know, I, I find that, like I, like I said before, LA has this way of making something its own, and I think that LA can do fine dining in a brand new way that's never been done before, that can really set a trend that, that doesn't just exist in Los Angeles, but sort of goes back 
across the East Coast and beyond, you know, that you can still have this really elevated um, cooking, inventive, creative style of um, chef performing in a way that sort of, you know, shows people that it can be just as delicious as those old school fine dining restaurants, but a lot more fun. Yeah. Well, speaking of fun, we're going to take a quick break and talk about Gwen, which is a completely different experience than Maud, but has a lot of the same aesthetic and sort of guiding points. Uh, We're going to listen to uh, one of our favorite bands, uh, Moon Hooch, who played a blazing saxophone performance here live on Snacky Tunes. Thank you. 
welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We're here with Chef Curtis Stone, sitting in his new, brand spanking new baby, uh, Gwen, named for mother's mother, right? Modest yes. fa- father's mother. Yeah. Um, and uh, it is definitely, well, it's different than Maud, but in many ways, you have this theme of just doing exactly what you want. You're doing another tasting menu here. And to have your two restaurants, now you offer a butcher scrap a la carte menu, but what is the, I mean, there is some bravado there to say that I have two restaurants, you're going to eat what I cook, or you're not going to eat it at all. <laughs> it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? I mean, you know, I think if you want to do something really well, yeah. you have to really believe in it, sure. because otherwise your heart's not there. And I, I kind of feel like when it comes to food, what my experience at least has been, people that cook well like to eat what they cook. You know, and if you're obsessed with meat, then you'll cook meat really well. If you're an absolute fish lover, if you're a dessert-aholic, then you'll be good at desserts. You know, so to me, to really do something that I believe in, I think is the best way to do it. And um, when I think about dining out, Mm -hmm. this is the way I like to eat. You know, and I think chefs get this experience all the time because we're buddies with a bunch of other chefs. And you go out for dinner, and the chef literally walks over and takes the menu off the table and says... Anything you don't want to eat, I'll be back in 10 minutes. And then the food just starts to come. And then four hours later, you're waving your white napkin going, like, please stop. Bring me a gin and tonic. Um, Now, for those who don't know uh, what Gwen is, it really is inspired by the classic European butcher shop. Now, you and your brother started as butchers, right? Yeah, we did. Were you competitive for, like, who could break down, like, a pig the fastest (laughs) and things like that? Luke started when he was literally 15 years old, so it's probably illegal these days, but he started as a a young guy, which meant that I was still still a little boy uh, because he's the older brother, although I probably look older than him these days. Um, (laughs) And then I started when I was 18. I started my apprenticeship in a five-star hotel, and that had a butcher shop in it. So they're very different style butcher shops, but we both had this love of meat. And yes, we used to argue about what the best way to break down a pig was. Um, and we both sort of went in different directions and I ended up in the restaurant business and he ended up in the flower business, actually, hmm. um, which was my mum's industry. She was a florist and then he took over her business um, later on in life. But we sort of always had this love of it and truthfully, it's a craft that's disappearing, like right before our eyes. Sure. I mean, I think you see it. I mean, New York, I think butchery is definitely with like Fleischer's, Meat Hook, things like that. Like it's there, but it's it's coming back, but not... Not where it used to be, like, a butcher on every corner. Right. Like, Audubon Alley's and all the other ones from New York were, like, just as, you know, uh, abundant as any other store. Yeah. Um, but in L.A., there are not a ton... I mean, I, there aren't really, like, butcher programs like that, or, like, restaurants that do really... I mean, there's a few. Yeah. And you're one of them. Um but when did you get this idea? I mean, you guys must have had this idea for a while, though, right? We kicked it around forever, and the initial plan was we'd open something back in Australia. Okay. And we sort of spoke about it for a while, and he, Luke lived in Australia with his family um, and, you know, would sort of say, you know, let's sit down and brainstorm, and, you know, he'd sort of be pushing me to do it. Uh, and I'd always just be too busy, and, like, the thought of trying to open something remotely didn't feel right so we Mm -hmm. sort of eventually I convinced him to uproot his entire life and family and move them all to LA and um, here we are doing it and you know the the thought of uh, an old school butcher shop and how that works in conjunction with a restaurant is cool you know I mean I I wanted to be really 
defined in the way we thought about it. It couldn't just be a restaurant with a butcher's counter, you know. No. It actually has to be a standalone butcher shop that does a great job. Um, and and then it happens to be a part of a restaurant, you know. And they, of course, can feed off each other. Um, the one big travesty of a great butcher shop is if you buy in something really exotic or rare or unusual and it doesn't sell, guess what happens to it? It just gets tossed. Yeah, you toss it, you know, and you lose the money on it. So yeah. once bitten, twice shy, you never buy those rabbits again or you're certainly not going to buy those exotic game birds from Scotland sure. next year. Um, where we have the opportunity with the restaurant sort of coexisting we can buy stuff in and if we buy in hare or rabbits or pheasants or whatever it is, we can always say, if in two days, you know, we haven't sold that through the butcher shop, we're going to turn it into a terrine or a riette or yeah. put it on a skewer and serve it in the bar. And, you know, we, we literally have a wasteless butcher shop. Which it's, is cool. it's interesting that sentiment of being like, okay, we can't push this product that someone will go home and cook with, but we'll, we'll put it through the kitchen and all of a sudden... Because you have a tasting menu where people have no choice. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you can sell what they wouldn't buy originally. It sounds like a, it sounds like a fascist state. Yeah. yeah. It's like, oh, you, you won't eat the rabbits? No, you're going to eat the rabbits. Um, so, you know, in picking uh, a partner to do anything creatively with, um, you know, I, my brother is my co-host on the show in many ways. But, you know, starting a business with your brother has got to be definitely an, an interesting or unique type of um, approach to yep. opening a restaurant. Uh, how is it working together and, and what is it like, especially since there is so much inspiration from your family in it, to like have your brother by your side, in, which is a much larger restaurant than Maud and your second kid, which is always different than you know, your second go around. Right. It's a really interesting dynamic because he's my older brother, right? of course. So as a younger brother, you learn to do what your older brother tells you from a very early age. Right. I've got two boys myself and I, I watch um, the four-year-old push around the one-year-old. I'm like, it's like you get to watch your own life play out through your own kids. Um, so I'm, I have to be a bit more careful with what I say uh, than usual because, of course, um, in a chef-run business or a chef-owned restaurant... What the chef says is sort of, that's how it goes. Yes, you know? chef, right? That's right. That's, that's why the expression exists. Uh, but not when your older brother is the person that is supposed to say, yes, chef. He doesn't God. always say, yes, chef. Isn't it so amazing when your older brother, you've put so many years and so much into cooking, and your brother, who has never been in a kitchen, can come in and be like, no, I'm the older brother. <laughs> We're going to do it differently. We're going to do it differently. <laughs> Look, it's, it's that kind of, um, it's that sort of thing that, you stand beside somebody and you probably don't always see eye to eye, right? Of but the second you turn around, if anybody else said what you just said to your brother, oh, yeah. you kick their ass. Right, right, right. You know what I mean? So it's like, it feels really good to have that level of backup and support and loyalty uh, that you just, you know, money can't buy it. Do you know what I mean? Of it's course. literally that old saying of blood being thicker than water. Um, but, you know, there's something. Um, there's something super challenging about it too. Of course. Um, now, there are a lot of, when people think of like a butcher-driven restaurant, they think of a very sort of like rustic type of, I mean, it's definitely in my mind a, a very stereotypical uh, or archetype of restaurant, but it's different here. I mean, you have uh, like an R&D lab. 
Right. And you also have uh, your backyard, which is a less formal R&D lab. <laughs> so what is the process when you're opening up a butcher restaurant to, in many ways, where Mod, you're saying something uh, different every month? Like, how are you saying something different here that's, you know, nose-to-tail dining, which has been around for a bit, but what are you doing differently? Yeah, good, good question, because it's sort of the obvious way to think of it is, oh, butcher shop and restaurants, so they must have big, beautiful steaks there, right? Right, or terrines and things like that, like your pate, like you, you sort of have an idea, like I know what the menu is, yeah. but it's very surprising what the menu is, and you know, what's the thought behind that? Well, I wanted to, again, sort of try and push the boundaries a little bit on what you know is possible. So we've got a butcher shop, we've got five butchers and a chacruteer. Um, but you know that the thought of that is like, well, how do we manipulate it until it's fantastic, as opposed to what you expect from a butcher mm-hmm. shop, which is good but simple. Um, so doing all of our own dry cures, bringing back all of those pâtés and rillettes and charcuterie, that old French school charcuterie that you don't see much anymore, um, and then of course the dry cure, which is kind of everywhere right now right like it's a bit more on trend to be making your own salamis and stuff so of course we do that too and that's kind of the first bites you know that we we give people a taste of the butcher shop right out of the gates but then also thinking about if we're going to have a whole animal butcher shop how do we cook those whole animals and again manipulate them and we use you know the, the the kitchen that you can see from the dining room doesn't have a plug in it you know there's a a josper which is a cold burning oven an acidor which is effectively a fire pit um, a brosero which is a burning basket of logs and we rake those coals under a grill and that's it you know there's not an oven there's not a stove top that doesn't um, run by fire Uh, so we sort of exercise that muscle in the way of super rustic cooking but then you know we smoke lamb shoulders over that acidor but then we put them into sous vide and cook them in an immersion circulator overnight and come back in the next morning and pull the meat and do something different with it so we sort of I guess mix that old world very rustic been doing it for thousands of years dry curing smoking over fires but then we also incorporate some technology and try and try and advance it somehow and you know when we just have one slogan in our business which is delicious comes first Mm -hmm. if we can do it more deliciously by bringing in technology great if we can't then let's just master the fire you know and i think what we end up with is a good combination of those two things so in many ways you know what you're doing with the fine dining scene um and sort of trailblazing or setting this new wave up of that do you feel the same responsibility for this new wave of butchery? Like, are you hoping that more people come in and there's more butcher shops and you start to see people, maybe not the, you know, in the same setup as you, but you're starting to see more butchers here, more butchers there, um, like in the L.A. area? Look, even if it's that subliminal message that gets across, you know, I don't expect people to understand what factory farming is and I don't expect people to understand that their meat gets put through a nitrogen tunnel and slammed through a big machine that creates the diced beef that you see, mm-hmm. you know, in, in a more um, mass market store. But, you know, the, if anybody stops to ask themselves, well, why do they highlight their farmers or why do they practice this butcher shop on an old world butcher's block in a window? The reason is because we really believe in great quality product. We believe in stuff that tastes fantastic, but we also believe in animal husbandry and we also believe in um you know bringing that skill to life in a way that yes it will cost a little bit more Mm -hmm. and so it should you know like as a guy that owns a butcher shop i always tell people to eat less meat but eat better quality meat sure 
And I think that if we can get that message across a little bit, then we've succeeded at the message. And if we give someone something fantastic to eat, then we've succeeded at what we do for a job. Now, for the butcher shop, you're also bringing in animals that are that are not readily available in pretty much anywhere else. Right. Um, and so are you acting in many ways about showing people other types of meat, other types of cuts of meat and ways to think about it where it is more special and less... Um, but it's like a higher quality. And what are you bringing in? So it's, I guess, just a collaboration of interesting um, ideas. You know, we've got butchers that have worked overseas. Mm -hmm. I've obviously cooked overseas. We've got some great chefs from different parts of the world. So we sort of all get together and talk about different processes and techniques. And, of course, that involves procuring great quality product. We've got a grass-fed Wagyu beef that we're bringing in Mm. from Australia that has all of that minerality and like delicious grass-fed quality but with the it's 100% Wagyu in breed so it naturally has that rich fatty delicious buttery sort of flavor uh, and this divine texture so you sort of I love showing that to people and also explaining to them what it means. You know, what, what is Wagyu? You know, it's, it's, I don't even know where else you'd try and find it here in L.A., but there's no reason why we shouldn't have access to it. It's, it's a beautiful product, you know. Um, the same with game. You know, I've, I've always, as both a resident of Los Angeles and then a chef in Los Angeles, found it really difficult. You know, I mean, when we first started Mort, I'd be FedExing birds in from the East Coast, which is so ludicrous. You know, we yeah. have great growers and we have people with good attitudes that are prepared to try stuff for you and grow rabbits or geese or whatever it is. Um, so we've managed to sort of open up some lines of um, supply that haven't historically existed and whether that's locally grown stuff or stuff that comes a little further once the sort of British um, game season kicks in we're going to procure a bunch of stuff from from different game Mm. reserves from over there so uh, whether it's European customers that are missing that from home or whether it's locals that are trying something from the first for the first time um, it's it's a cool thing I mean not only is it a cool thing it's a lot I mean the butcher shop two restaurants still the the family the so what you do for TV thing or that, like how do you find the balance? I mean, because pretty much every time I've come into one of your restaurants, you're in there. You know, yeah. now obviously you can't cook at both restaurants at each night, but how do you find a balance and how important is it to you to be a chef in your restaurant um, and cooking? I think if you're not going to do it, there's no point to doing it. You know, like... Not, not be there? Right. Okay. If, like with anything in life. You know, it's no point being a father if you're going to be an absent father. You've got to sure. be there. And there's no point being a chef if you're not going to cook. Um, so how do I balance it? I don't. That's the truth. I've never been able to balance stuff. I've never had balance in my life. Sure. I, I push myself harder than I probably should. I get up at 6 o'clock in the morning so I can be with my kids because my time with my kids is in the morning because I'm in the restaurants at night. Um, but then I'm in the restaurants till midnight and then I want to work with the front of house team to try and help them improve their service. So I'm here until two o'clock in the morning with them. And I, 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 I probably go a little harder than I should. Um, but I love it. I love what I do and I don't want to miss it, you know? So, um, I'll find balance (laughs) one day, but I haven't got it right now. I'm, I'm working, um, some crazy hours. Uh, I think if you're really passionate about something, then it doesn't feel like work. And it never does to me. You know, like, I speed every morning. I shouldn't say this. 
on live uh, um, live to the air. But I, I do. I speed down the hill to get to work as fast as I can because yeah. I want to be there, you know. And I speed home to get to my family at night time because I want to be there too. So um, I don't know. I've always lived my life pretty fast pace, I guess. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us. Um, how do people? I mean, how do people get into mod? And then how do people get into Gwen? Gwen's a little bit bigger, so it's easier, but... It's a little broader, yeah. Look, more. we've been super lucky. We've had a group of really um, loyal diners that haven't missed a menu, mm-hmm. which is amazing to me that people have literally, for the best part of three years, gone every month to the same restaurant, and they, they haven't missed one, and... I wonder how long we can go with without doing that. Then it's a tiny room. But truthfully, I think the misconception about Maud is it's impossible, and it's not impossible. There's actually some tables open for next month um, right now. So, you know, you can you can go to... Uh, we, we do a, an online reservation system to make it yeah. s- as simple as possible. And on the first of the month, at 10 a.m., if you log on to Maud, you will get a table. So... Um, I guarantee it. Um, great. And how can people find you online? You got you have a good Instagram game? How's your social media? It used to be good before I opened uh, these restaurants. And <laughs> you now, it's, restaurants. Uh, now it's a little dodgier, but I'm, I, I try and keep my, my hand in it for sure. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Congratulations. Uh, looking forward to coming back and eating again and again. And uh, as someone who's a transplant... Now in LA, I appreciate that you have these two restaurants. Thanks so much. It's been nice chatting to you. And anytime, I would love to cook you dinner. Oh, well, thank you so much. We have one of our favorite little sewing for summer, but I love it. It's Porches in the Mood, live here on Snacky Tunes. Oh, 
This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. All right, welcome back to Snacky Tunes. B-Boys, live. Let's hear your best vomit voice. Live in New York! <laughs> uh, you want to go around the room and introduce yourselves? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do I speak into the microphone? Uh, my name is Britton. Uh, play in B Boys. I'm a I'm an OGB, and uh, oh, yeah. we're all OGBs though. Oh, yeah. so. Okay. Uh, uh, my name is Brendan, and I play bass and sing. I'm Andrew. I play the drums. Okay. Uh, how did the three of you meet? Three self-proclaimed psychos. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I met Britton uh, when I was going to school uh, about. Well, I met him when I was 18 at first, and I didn't see him for like three years. And then didn't I met like him. him. <laughs> he didn't like me. Um, didn't like the cut of the jib? He was just a little worm. <laughs> I, had a fun, I had a fun haircut. No, and then I met Andrew like three years ago, I guess. Like at a bar randomly, and then I moved back to Texas for a while, and then I was like, we're still going to play music. And then so we actually met again <laughs> to play music in like a year. And Guys, a don't later. forget about me. <laughs> yeah. This is still happening. Yeah, I was like, I, I swear, we got the riffs. So I don't know. <laughs> And that's how we all met. We kind of through mutual friends, and too we we kind of played the same circuit of shows. He's Andrew's from Florida, and Britt and I lived in Texas, so we kind of had the same kind of like DIY house show connections. Uh, what was one of the more acclaimed uh, DIY venues that you played? Any of the particular houses that stood out from the others? I mean, we in Fort Worth we have Hemp Hill, which is one of the long time standing DIY venues. In uh, Fort Worth, yeah, Texas. that's like a legit DIY venue. I feel. Yeah. What makes it What makes it so good? It's a just an open community space. Everyone's safe. They uh, have every show that no one else will have. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, you yeah, always yeah. have a place to play with Hemp Hill. There's someone always working it, and people actually put in volunteer hours to make it run. They put in the work to actually keep it up and. DIY spaces usually come and go pretty quick, like houses and different spaces get shut down and stuff. And Hempel's one that's lasted a long time and had a lot of fundraisers and just people really support it that hopefully uh, can keep it going. So if you're in Fort Worth, donate to 1999 Falcon. <laughs> <laughs> um, is it a proper PA in there, like a proper, or is it still like pretty DIY? Last time I was there, it's pretty bare bones. <laughs> you're just on the ground in cement. They got a little quarter pipe. It works though. It's it's yeah. punk, yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so um, you guys were loosely playing. Like, when did B Boys uh, finally gel or kind of come together? Twenty fourteen. We gelled. We put the Doctor Scholes on. <laughs> we w- walked in step together. And we like gelled. Um, yeah, I guess like twenty fourteen. We just met, and this band has been pretty easy to write songs. So Britt and I have jammed in other projects before. So we kind of have similar music taste and we all vibe pretty easily just felt right chemistry worked what makes it i mean what makes it so easier what kind of like fell into step andrew's a really good drummer <laughs> <laughs> just the backbone yeah. yeah that helps uh Britt and i lo- have pretty similar taste in riff so if Britton comes we play our instrument but like i play guitar he'll play bass every once in a while we just can switch off and we kind of both feel what each other wants, you know, like, so we kind of just can vibe off each other pretty fast. Awesome. Can we hear a song? Yeah. What are you going to play first? 
Britain. All right, sound frequency. Um, you talk about dataism coming through your records. Ooh. How does it weave into the songwriting? I mean, they said New York is data, which like, and you have a, like a very New York 70s sound to it. So does it come from there? Or? I think we all have kind of been inspired from the, <laughs> the art movement itself, just of like not really taking things too seriously, too, too seriously, like putting stuff together kind of in different ways. But with that kind of not serious or no direction, you kind of create a message with it or something like that. And I think as loose as the term is, it can kind of be redefined as however we feel it. We just also thought it sounded fun. So <laughs> it's a fun movement. It's like uh, it's just kind of about doing whatever you kind of please and just trying to slap 
cut, glue, whatever it takes just to like make a song kind of come together or something or just a, a vibe like that. So, uh, I mean, as you guys have kind of like share riffs and have a strong drummer, how does the songwriting process alter like loosely informed by an art movement come come together? And how do you play, you know, play into each other? I mean, like, we're just we just jam. We just rockers. We just jam. Like that's all we do. Uh, we just get like kind of we do like a lot of repetitive stuff. So it's like easy to get kind of hypnotized, and then everyone can like throw their little extra sauce on there. Yeah, we just like uh, I don't so know. Just so looking at that pizza. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we get like cheese on there. You get some pepperoni yeah, on you there. You oven fry it, and then out comes a hot, delicious song that I hope we get in twenty minutes. Yeah. Uh, um, I think we just like all kind of. We, someone brings a riff, and we kind of just sometimes a chorus part can be agonizing to figure out, or a second part. Other times it just comes really fast, and just like, and usually the faster the better. It kind of feels like like if we play a song a lot and it doesn't really come together, usually those aren't our favorite songs. Mm-hmm. Like the ones that kind of come together the fastest and just kind of. We're uh, usually kind of joking at first. That's, that's how they work the easiest. That's true. <laughs> when we're serious, it's like not working. Yes. It's like our song Psycho came out, like, I just played a riff, and Britton was just standing with a microphone, no drums or anything, he's just like, I'm Psycho! And I was like, okay, that rules. <laughs> You're like, okay, yeah. next, yeah. got yeah. it, put it, on, put it yeah, in the box. Exactly, and it's just like, I don't know, like, yeah, when, all the songs you kind of, you just have to take the approach of just, like, letting things kind of fall by the wayside, don't hold anything too precious, and just let it kind of ride, at least in the songwriting. I mean, if it doesn't feel natural, it ain't natural. <laughs> uh, can we hear another song? Yeah. What are you guys going to play? Andrew. Hitman. Yeah, okay. This song's called Neva. <laughs> Working on a record, demoing, if you will. Yes. With the amazing captured tracks, which is awesome. 
A Snacky Tunes favorite label. Cool, yeah. <laughs> Ours too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love that label. <laughs> um, <laughs> how is the process going for kind of refining the songs to get them down to the record? It's going pretty good. We just uh, usually just... we Actually, we bought a whiteboard recently to write down all the songs because... Usually when we practice, we just come up with a riff and we kind of get lost in riffs. We're like, oh my god, we have so many weird ideas, but we don't put anything together. So we kind of have like a whiteboard with like, things in the green are need to get worked on. Things in the red are up in the air. Things in the blue are complete. And then we're like kind of mapping out the record. So I guess we're just trying to be as productive and as efficient as possible at this point. But sometimes you just get stoned and jam a lot. So <laughs> you kind of lose focus. Um, and uh, is there any plans for a tour in the upcoming fall or uh, hitting the road? Yeah, in October, uh, me and Danny are going to fly down to Florida, meet Andrew, and then go from Florida to Texas and back. So we'll get to hit both our home states. Yeah. Uh, are you ex- Where are you playing for the homecoming shows? Mm, Dallas is up in the air right now, I feel. <laughs> Dallas, Ga- uh, Gainesville, Delray. Gramps? Yeah. It's a good Gainesville, name. This place called The Atlantic. Cool, yeah, when we go cool back spots. to Playing with our, our friend Soda in Florida. Yeah. All the Florida dates are with them. That'd be good. I get to see my parents. They get to see me do my thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the venues like in Denton, where we're from, like we would love to play there, but it's just kind of, well, everyone lives here now. And yeah. then like the main. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't really know anyone there. Kind of a college, yeah. transient college town, so it's always kind of changing. We have some crucial people there, but we don't really know what. Doubt. I mean, they moved it out, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, they left Denton, and so you're just like all new people, yeah. <laughs> all new faces. Yeah, it's like every. We're year. from there. We can bring a crowd. Yeah. We promise. Yeah, maybe. Um, <laughs> well, I want to thank you guys for coming on. I want to make sure we have time for one more song. Yeah, definitely. Um, where can people find you? Uh, get the music. Find out tour dates. Offer you shows. Offer you couches. Bboys.bandcamp.com. Bboys.dada.tumblr. Bboysdada at gmail.com, Bboysdada at Instagram.com, <laughs> Bboysdada at Facebook Messenger.com. Capture Tracks, Capture Tracks website. If you Google it, it might not exist. I don't know where that is. Yeah, I looked for it the other day. I, looked, I can't find it. <laughs> Link's okay. broken. Yeah, it's coming. You got some time. We got Spotify. We're on there. Bboys, no worry, no mind might I, be easier. I can't believe Bboys wasn't taken. Mm. A lawyer said that it might be questionable So we're just going to write it out You might see it as the D-Boys coming up next album (laughs) A-Boys Yeah, Yeah, who knows Um, What's the name of the last song you're going to play? Otherhead Okay Uh, Well, thanks for uh, for coming by Yeah, definitely Thanks to our guest Um, We'll be back next week with another live episode of Snacky Tunes Back at me 
Listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>